Well, if I couldn't be a vet or a scientist, um, this question, maybe I could have answered it very well in 1999, because in 1999, that's when I took the, the turning, which which took me to become a qualified um, veterinarian. And uh, since that time, I've never looked back. Hello, and welcome to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the MRC, University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. I'm Connor Bamford, a postdoc at the CVR and one of your hosts for this episode. Today, Jack Hurst, a PhD student in the Hutchinson Lab, and I talk with Dr. Charles Musambi about his work on tracking the spread of animal viruses in Africa. Charles is a veterinarian and molecular epidemiologist by training and is an associate professor at the College of Natural Sciences at Makerere University in Uganda. He is working at the CVR on finding out how a virus called African swine fever virus causes outbreaks across Uganda by moving between farms in the forest, either in domestic or wild pigs themselves, or via the ticks that call the pigs home. This work is funded by a recently awarded Wellcome Trust Intermediate Fellowship in Public Health and Tropical Medicine. Hi, my name is Charles, Charles Masembe. I am I'm interested in working the, um, on full genome sequencing of African swine fever. And I'm working with the Massimo Massimo's group, so I'm an affiliate member of the CVR University of Glasgow. I am from Uganda, from Makerere University, from the Department of Zoology, Entomology, and Fisheries Sciences. So maybe we can begin by telling us a bit about your background, where you were born, where you grew up, Charles. Well, Charles Massimo was born in Uganda in Kampala, the capital city of Uganda. Um, I was born in January the 5th of 1973. I don't know which day of the week it was, but I could could go and check and find out. Um, I am a veterinarian. I did my veterinary training in Uganda at Makere University, and uh, I finished this degree in 1999. After that, I started my MSc, and I did a Master of Science in the Environment and Natural Resources, but with a specialty in a, um, wildlife conservation genetics, using population genetics approaches for conservation of wildlife. After that, I went on for my um, PhD, which was a sandwich PhD, between Makere University and the, the University of Copenhagen. This was to further my research in uh, wildlife conservation genetics. So I did my PhD on conservation of um, large mammals, selected large mammals in, uh, in Eastern Africa. These mammals mainly included the African elephant, which is uh, endangered, um, the airland, and also um, the, the oryx, and the, the hippopotamus. So um, that PhD training gave me a lot of exposure because it was joined um, between Macquarie University in a developing country and the Copenhagen University in a developed country, a developed country. And uh, this, this was because by then the funding agency was the Danish International Development Agency. It wanted to build a capacity in Africa. So the focus was the research in Africa by Africans in Africa. So then the, 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 the project was in a, a program of starting up a laboratory in Uganda where one can do basic DNA extraction, basic PCR experiments, and then uh, the sequencing can be outsourced because the this was in the early 2000s, and what was happening by then is that scientists from, from the Western world, Europe, America, mentioned it, they would always come to Africa, collect samples, and off they go with the samples in their suitcases. And the local African scientist doesn't get to get involved with the work. The only thing he has to know is an acknowledgement or being included in a paper eh, later on. But 
the scientists would not, very few scientists would get involved in the process of data generation. So they would kind of lose out. So this laboratory was set up to encourage local scientists to be part of the process. And I'm happy that this was established because then the lab has now grown to large extents. So um, <coughs> after finishing my PhD in 2005, then we asked ourselves, okay, what do we do next? We are, we are working on conservation of large mammals. And by then, the major theme was conservation, conservation, conservation. So we used the molecular tools for conservation. But no funding was coming for, forth through that approach. So we said, okay, here I am. I'm a veterinarian. And we have learned the molecular techniques. Um, why don't we look at the some diseases which are both economically important and also politically important? Um, diseases that have got a wildlife and the domestic angle. So we chose the disease which is a um, foot and mouth disease. So um, again we sought for funding from Danida and we got, uh, we got it supported. So I started my postdoc on that project to look at uh, the dynamics of uh, FMD at the livestock wildlife interface. And still with FMD the other aspect was uh, farmers and veterinarians were always vaccinating their animals in the field. You would expect that if you vaccinate, the animals don't come down with disease a couple of months later. But this was not the case. Animals were always getting sick, even after vaccination. So something was actually wrong. So we set out to investigate that. See, what is the problem with the strains that is causing the outbreaks of FMD and the, what is the contribution of wildlife towards the um, FMD in Uganda. Wildlife is important because unlike in other countries like uh, South Africa, Namibia, our national parks are not fenced, they are not enclosed. So there's a direct contact between domestic animals and the wildlife. So um, on that program where I was uh, doing a joint postdoc, um, I got exposure at uh, uh, Lindholm. Lindholm is a small island in, in Denmark. It's about five acres, but that's where all the laboratory work for exotic viruses, including FMD, is done. So there we did the um, harvesting of uh, ocine macrophages to be able to grow the uh, foot and mouth disease virus. We did all the PCRs from there, and then I did all the field work in Uganda. And on this program, we again to follow up with capacity building. We had the four PhD students. One student was from Kenya, the company which produces the vaccine, the FMD vaccine for Uganda. Then two others were um, veterinarians who were in the field, already working. And one other person was a scientist working somewhere. So I had a team of four PhD students under my immediate uh, responsibility. It's interesting what we found out in this uh, work. Um, we found out that if you group the, the viruses which are causing FMD in Uganda, and you say, okay, these group, the viruses should sort themselves according to similarities or according to differences. We found uh, um, that uh, we had two groups. One group, no, no, not two groups. We had, yeah, we had two groups, but uh, one group was uh, uh, very different from the group which has got um, the vaccine strain, meaning that the vaccine strain which we were using to vaccinate our cows in Uganda was the uh, maybe let's say 98% different from the field strain. Mm -hmm. So that means that uh, possibly, since this vaccine strain is very different from the field strain, chances are that it cannot protect the, the against the saturating strains of foot and mouth disease in Uganda. So um, <coughs> we gave this information. Okay, we wrote publications and presented it to the ministry and uh, we had several uh, platforms where we talked about our findings. 
and uh, this was kind of very difficult because this is about money mm-hmm. you're telling the vaccine company look the vaccine that you're producing for us is way different from the field strains they don't want to hear that <laughs> but then we were working with the one person from the vaccine company so that gave us confidence um, to tell them hey this is what we found out so our government has now taken up i'm happy about that our government has now taken up that uh, result and they have negotiated with the vaccine company to to stop producing vaccine from the old port that they have so they are now collected the field material of foot and mouth disease from uganda and they are going to use that one in the new vaccine that they are producing for foot and mouth disease so hopefully this will increase on the chances of protection so yeah i should say my group is happy about that uh, finding but uh, we couldn't have got it if we one if we didn't have the laboratory in uganda mm-hmm. two if we were not working with the several scientists from different um areas and also if we're not working with the ministry so that my group is happy about that so then <coughs> we, we the scientists always have to continue doing work so then we moved on um in 2000 and the and the, around 2008 or 2009 i got um connections with the colleagues from the swedish university of agricultural sciences and the swedish veterinary institute where um, we started working on another disease which is also economically important but also politically important and this is the african swine fever so now my group was uh, working on two diseases one one subgroup on Af- on foot and mouth disease and my interest now is into um, african swine fever so then that's how i started the work on african swine fever is coming to it's about 10 years or mm. since we begin work since we began work on african swine fever so that's a, a bit of my research history mm-hmm. yeah yeah just talk about that vaccine thing so how have they got such a, a difference between the field strain and the vaccine strain was it just like a really old vaccine or was it like a really quickly emerging field strain um fmd is caused by a different type of Well, we have got two, two genotypes of virus viruses depending on their nucleic acid composition we have got the rna viruses mm-hmm. and we have got the dna viruses now the rna viruses are very uh, rather more unstable if you compare them to the dna viruses now foot and mouth disease is an rna virus meaning that the rate of change since it is unstable the rate of change relatively high and actually the vac- the vaccine strain that was being used was uh, collected in 1978 yeah so it was really really old we had to keep up with the with the changes yeah yeah so yeah to answer your question yes it was very very old okay sure and yeah. then does that mean you that have to sort of keep periodically updating the vaccine every few years so? mm-hmm. okay mm-hmm. yeah 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 i think that's uh, the good the advice or the way forward would be keep checking eh? the field straight the field strain and the vaccine strain if you realize that they are going far apart by a certain percentage then you have to get more and replenish the the vaccine pot as i would say yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so i think what struck me was that you came into virology from a very different way than for most people here so you came in from a conservation angle mm mm-hmm. um, so how do you think that has helped you or hindered you how has it helped me mm-hmm. in what in in your research in so, my research yeah. <coughs> yes i came in from from the conservation angle but i also came in from a veterinary angle having done veterinary medicine then you learn about all these kind of diseases and then um i i always tell my students take molecular uh, genetics take this population genetics as a tool yeah? as a tool it doesn't mean that if you study the um, population genetics with aspects of conservation you cannot use it for other approaches so mm-hmm. 
I combine my veterinary knowledge with the molecular population genetics expertise that I had acquired to make it um, suitable, useful for my, my country and working on diseases that have been of major interest. So I should say that yes, my training in population genetics, my training in conservation genetics really gave me the turning point to establish my career in the, uh, molecular epidemiology. Yeah, yeah. And I think another thing that you had chosen what diseases you wanted to work on on the basis of economic importance and political importance. Um, so maybe you can tell us a bit more about why do these diseases are economically important and why they are politically important. Um, should I say about FMD or OSF or, or both of them? Both of them, both of them. Okay. Um, FM, FMD is a politically important because an average rural farmer in, in Uganda keeps cows, keeps goats and keeps pigs and that's their livelihood. Yeah? Um, if there's an outbreak of foot and mouth disease and it's confirmed, then there's a quarantine. No sale of animal of, of animal products or animals or yes, bovine cows. Now, if you're looking at this farmer who has been surviving on selling milk, eh, and you're telling him, no, you're not going to sell your milk because there is a quarantine, there is an outbreak of uh, foot and mouth disease. So he will lose money. Eh? And then, so that is a direct economical uh, effect on this farmer. And then the governments, the local governments, they also get money from these um, cattle markets, eh, selling meat from in the in the butchers and all that. So this everything dealing with the cows is it comes to a total standstill. Mm. Now then the the local the local people they're not happy. So then they complain to the authorities, eh, the political authorities. Look, we like to eat meat, we like to sell our our milk. What is happening? Eh? This disease is not killing people. It is only, and it's not killing the cows, but then we are not selling our, our animal products. Then it becomes political, and the politician wants to get a, a leverage. He would always want to do something to make his people happy. Mm -hmm. So, again, he raises dust and says, no, these animals should be let go, or everything. Mm -hmm. So it becomes a, a confused state. The money is lost, and then the, the political aspect comes in many times. The politicians overshadow the scientific basis of uh, disease control, and that's a really a big problem. Mm -hmm. That is for um, foot and mouth disease. For African swine fever, um, again, many people in sub-Saharan Africa keep pigs. Actually, pig production is on a sharp increase um, compared to Europe. In the last 30 years, Africa is raising at a very high high rate the aspect of pig keeping. And that goes with the pork consumption. In Europe, you always have barbecues. And no, you don't always have barbecues. You only have barbecues in summer. <laughs> but you always have barbecues anytime in, in Uganda. And usually, these pork barbecue places are very popular in the evenings. And the people who frequent them are usually the middle middle income class, mm -hmm. and this class is also high. They are increasing. The middle income is increasing, mm -hmm. so they always go out there to take a beer and eat some roasted pork, mm -hmm. yeah, which is a, a delicacy. Now, the average farmer, the average rural person, might keep maybe three or four pigs. The reason is that uh, these pigs. They return, you see, low investment but high returns. Mm -hmm. You just keep one pig or two, and then within eight months, they produce, and you get another eight or 12 piglets, mm -hmm. and you can sell the piglet a, a few weeks old to another prospective farmer. That's money. Or you can wait for eight months, and then you sell an adult pig. That's again good money. Mm -hmm. So they return the money rather quickly. Actually, 
we in our research team we always say the pig pig is a, a walking bank call it a walking bank because the people in the in the cities they have atm cards if they want to pick money they get their atm atm card and then yank into the machine and withdraw money but a person who is staying 300 kilometers away in kampala they don't have an atm card to pick money mm-hmm. and they, so their atm card is the pig itself and if he, if they put up a sign post that they're selling a pig quickly somebody will come and buy that pig and they'll get some money and that money they don't need thousands of shillings they, they, or they don't need quite a lot of money they need some money to meet the basic needs send the child to school buy some books do some medical bills and they keep going so it's economically important in that uh, aspect and then <coughs> when this pig gets uh, when there's african swine fever we always say it spreads like wildfire mm-hmm. because then we have got two systems of pig keeping not two we have got varied systems there's some people who have got uh, uh, enclosures or small houses mm-hmm. shelters where the pigs are kept but then there are others who just let the pigs roam you let the pigs move and they find their own food and this usually goes with the season of agricultural production if you have got crops in the in the garden then you tether your pigs if you have harvested the crops then you let the pigs roam and then they eat the remains in the garden mm-hmm. so you don't you save on on the feeding now if there's an outbreak of african swine fever since the pigs are usually let to roam free then it will spread by contact one pig contacts another and then the disease spreads again like i said like wildfire to the next farm and the next village and that and then unlike african unlike foot and mouth disease pigs that get sick 80-90% die of this disease so that's a big loss to the to the farmer we have I've, during my work i've talked to farmers find them literally in tears because they have lost their pigs their business is gone mm-hmm. their livelihood is gone so yeah it is a, it is a economically important and again when there's an outbreak usually the government slaps a quarantine no movements in and out mm-hmm. uh, in a certain area of pig and the pig products that's money lost to the farmers that's money lost to the local administration because they always collect taxes and again when the traders suspect or get rumors that in village b there's an outbreak of african swine fever then a pig which was costing about to a hundred dollars then they are, they can buy it at about $20 because the farmer is scared eh? mm-hmm. the the traders tell the farmer hey look you know what village a has got an outbreak of asf next time it is coming to this village so the farmer is in a, a confused state so he sells in a rush mm-hmm. instead of selling at 100 then the trader say well we'll buy it maybe at a, at tw- at 10 then the farmer says no please you buy me <laughs> okay okay 20 at least you salvage something mm-hmm. but that's a loss a lot of mm-hmm. imagine 80 dollars yeah. lost per, per pig eh? so that's the the challenge yeah okay so um, so what actually is african swine fever virus well african swine fever virus as the name is it is a, a, a virus which is a, which was found in africa and affecting a um, swine um it was found in in 1921 by montgomery who was a, a british uh, worker sent to the british colony of eastern africa um the british had the well not only the british but many europeans had taken uh, domestic pigs to this uh, british colony um to enhance their pig protein source so then in 1921 montgomery observed that uh, the pigs were dying and having uh, hemorrhages and dying uh, in a relatively short time so 
when the viral when the characterization was done <coughs> it was found out that this disease is caused by a virus which is a, which was called african swine fever i imagine it could have been called any other name if it was found in a, in america or in europe maybe european swine okay. fever but well here we are with african swine fever um it is since in 1921 this disease was was restricted to africa but later on in 1957 um it spread to europe it went to it went to portugal then southern america and it caused a lot of havoc but it had it has been controlled in those areas so the virus is a double stranded linear dna virus um it's a, a very large virus if you compare to the fmd virus fmd virus is 7000 base pairs but uh, this african swine fever virus is uh, 186000 base pairs so it is pretty long pretty large and stable um, in the environment now this uh, disease um, this virus affects both the domestic and the wild and the wild pigs so it takes it in the domestic cycle and also in the wild cycle now the wild cycle involves the domestic the involves the bush pig it involves the warthog um it also involves the potential the red river hog and the giant forest hog but concentrating more on the on the bush pig and and on the warthog <coughs> this play some important role in the maintenance of this uh, disease because the these are uh, these two species uh, the uh, distant relatives of uh, domestic pigs they get the virus but they don't get sick from this uh, viral infection actually the warthogs uh, the young ones have got a high viremia you can if you sample a young one the studies have shown that if young ones are sampled they have got a high concentration of virus in their in their blood now the warthog situation becomes um, complicated because the warthogs are diurnal they are active during the daytime and they stay in the burrows in the, in the national parks in the wild in the wild areas um now the when they are in the burrows they are soft ticks there of the onithodorous group now the soft ticks feed on this warthog when they are sleeping during the night in the burrow now the other thing is that the soft ticks they fear light so in the morning when the warthogs are going out the soft ticks fall off so in all our work we have never found a soft tick on the warthog which we have captured during daytime so there's a maintenance of the virus between the soft tick in the wild and the warthog now the question is that how does this virus come from the the warthog into the domestic domestic area where the domestic pigs now the bush pig unlike the warthog is nocturnal it is only active at night and also does not sleep in a, um, a barrow just makes a nest and they sleep in the, in the nest um, during daytime so <coughs> the bush pig since it is nocturnal and there's less threats on the farmland and there's a possibility actually we have documented this we have found out that the bush pigs are able to move from the wild into the the farmland there's some publication which we sent out a couple of years ago where we used the um, gps collars and we traced that uh, this bush pig is able to move to the the area the domestic areas where there are um, domestic pigs plus of course you can see we have seen where the the damage caused by these bush pigs on crops the uproot crops cassava sweet potatoes um, and others so they are they move they have the potential to move out from the wild to the to the domestic area now what is the role of the bush pig in the transmission and maintenance of african swine fever from the wild to the domestic pigs and what is the role of the bush of the warthog 
in the maintenance and transmission of African swine fever from the wild to the domestic. And then how do these two link up the bush pig and the and the warthog? Despite them living in the same uh, large ecological area, they have got what we could call micro ecological niches. They don't use the same the same habitat at the same time to sleep. So that's really very important. Then uh, <coughs> unlike the Afri other like South Africa Botswana whose national parks are fenced in Uganda and indeed many other sub-Saharan uh, countries where there are national parks, they are not fenced. So the the animals can always move in and out. The wild animals can always move in, move out of the, their enclosure and they possibly go to the to the farmland. So <coughs> we want to find out the importance of this wild cycle in maintenance and transmission of African swine fever. Um coming back to domestic domestic pig, how is this disease um, transmitted? How is the virus transmitted from from one farm to another, and from one pig to another, and how does it come to spread like um, wildfire, as it is always it is always said. Um, first of all, um, the pigs that get sick from African swine get infection of African swine fever virus. They don't have much long to live. They die within um, two two weeks, and they about. 90% of the pigs that get affected, they die. The literature used to have it that 100% of pigs die, but what we have observed is in 80% mortality. So there are some which, which survive, and they, that's also very interesting. So now, the disease from the one farm to another um, could spread through a contact of a unincubating pig or a sick pig with the, another susceptible uh, pig, then the virus gets transmitted. Um, again, if farmers keep visiting each other, if one farm has got infection and then that farmer visits another farm, then he can also, he or she can also potentially trans transmit the virus from one farm to to the next. If one went to uh, a pig, a, a pork, a pork shop where they are selling the, uh, a pork and that meat is from an infected pig, then uh, if you carry this meat back home, the tenants is usually okay to serve the kitchen waste to, to the to the pigs or to whatever animals you have at home. If a pig farmer does that, then uh, he's potentially introducing infection to, to, to their farm. Then another group of people, um, also the employees. Employees might, uh, you might have several employees on your farm, and they, are, they don't only work at your place, they also have to visit other places. So they could also play a big role in, in spreading this in virus. Then we have the, the traders. Their role, they are the only interested in buying and selling pig. And you don't know where these, pig, where these traders have been. Say they have got a truck and it has got about 20 pigs and some of them are from suspected um, farms. And when the traders come onto your farm, then they will always enter the pig farm and begin touching this pig and that pig and the other pig. So that's a potential uh, source of infection. And then they have, during the suspected SF outbreak, the, the farmers get a, they get a kind of in a very unsecure situation. Let's assume a whole pig, a live pig, um, costs about 100 USD. And then um, the farmer risks losing this pig completely. So what the farmer does is to sell at whatever price he can salvage. And then the traders are also uh, kind of looking for the weakest point in the, in the farmer. So they tell him, oh, you know what? The other farm has got an infection. Then the other village has got ASF. So instead of buying your pigs at 100 USD each, we shall pay you maybe uh, uh, 20. Then the farmer says, well, no, give me at least 50. Say, no, we are driving off. We are going to buy from the next farm. Then eventually the farmer has no option but in, um, to accept whatever the traders have given. So that, uh, that uh, panic there caused that uh, issue of panicking when there's an outbreak. Um, actually, it also contributes to uh, the spread of the, of the virus. 
So that's a very big uh, problem. I should have mentioned that uh, in the earlier phases, but uh, I can also mention now that this SF viral disease has neither vaccine nor treatment. So that becomes uh, extremely very, very difficult in terms of controlling this disease. So there are many research efforts working on working towards getting a, a, a vaccine for this uh, animal um, disease. Um, yeah. So you touched on a little bit earlier. So what kind of techniques are you using in the field to sort of work out, you know, what these sort of wild animals are doing and how this virus is spreading? Yeah. Um, there are quite a, a several techniques, but depending on which type of animal we are, we are catching. We say, let's now first concentrate on the wild. Remember I mentioned in the wild we have got two interesting species. We have got the warthog and we have got the bush pig. The warthog is the Diano and the bush pig is nocturnal. So let's start with the nocturnal uh, bush pig. Um, what we do is uh, to keep we we bait a suspected area. We link up with the Uganda Wildlife Authorities and the rangers. They keep patrolling the, the park, so they kind of know where which areas are frequented by um, these bush pigs. So uh, through our collaboration with the uh, scientists at the U.S. Wildlife Research Center in uh, Colorado, um, we have got uh, we have adopted uh, the construction of uh, cages uh, about uh, about five meters by seven meters seven meters length, and then five is width, and then about uh, one and a half meters um, high. So then this metallic cage, um, there are panels, you can bolt it together depending on the on the area that you want to enclose. And then you install it in the selected part in the in the bush, in the national park, and you let it stay for quite some time. Because then if you have just brought it freshly into this area, the animals are very uh, sensitive to a new introduction in their area. So you let it can even let grass grow over it eh? so that the pigs get used to that uh, new structure in their environment. And then you can bait, uh, throw food into the, the cage. Um, this cage, you, you throw in maize, um, fermented corn, um, you can throw in kitchen leftovers from the park, or even you can uh, get some uh, skin, eh? These pigs like smelly things, like a goat skin. You throw it in there and let it roll. And then in front of the of the cage, you put a, in front of the cage door, you put um, a camera, um, a trap camera, which can take a, a, which is which has a motion sensor, which can take pictures, and also you can enable it to take uh, video clips, because then you want to know what time. Because remember, all these things are happening at night on our nocturnal animal. You want to know uh, how many pigs go inside this cage, at what time do they frequent this cage, um, what is their family structure, is, are, they, are they loners or they are got uh, young ones. Uh, so you want to know the structure and the usual time when these pigs, uh, these bush pigs come into um, this cage. So um, I'm armed with all this information, and I should also mention that when you're constructing the metallic cage, all other signs are closed except the, the door. And the door, instead of closing, as our usual doors close from left to right or right to left, this one is closing from top to down, so it is just dropping down. Um, so we have got a series of pulleys, um, which you which you will let this door drop down. So when you you say okay now today is the day I should activate my trap door. Um, you get a, a, a string a tight string and you lift the door put keep the door up, and then you tie that string to somewhere in the center of the cage. In the center of the cage you put um, two pegs, inclined at uh, about forty five degrees away from the door. And then the string that is coming from the door, from above the door, you tie it and you get 
a, a wooden a wooden piece a piece of wood and roll the, the string around it and make sure that uh, that uh, trap or that trigger is is held back by the two um, the two pegs that you put into the ground so that is now our trigger and then in the center around this trigger you put a, a lot of bait corn and all the other stuff that you have been putting which attracts the pigs to come and eat then you you go about to maybe a hundred uh, or sixty feet away and you wait then the pigs will, will usually come unsuspecting then they will come and they go in and begin eating their their dinner or their breakfast eh, whatever time so then as they are eating they trigger the 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 switch uh, and then the door will fall down and it will close them in now this is during the night it is not advisable to work on the on the pigs at night unless you have got uh, all the necessary uh, precautions done but given our circumstances we cover the uh, the cage with a tarpaulin so that there's no uh, like there's the animals inside cannot see what is directly outside and also the potential predators outside cannot see what is inside the cage so then very early in the morning um we come to the cage and put a, a hunter's net in front of the door and then we lift the door up and then the pigs will run into they will see oh the door has now been opened let's run out as they run out then they run into uh, this cage this uh, net and then with physical restraint you catch them um, if you want if you just want to get blood um, then you just go to the hind femoral vein and draw blood um, for whichever pig that we we sample for whichever bush pig that we sample we put a, a chip below the left ear to make sure that uh, we are able to tell if we capture this pig again we're able to tell through using a scanner and then um, if you want to put a radio collar we put we sedate the pigs the bush pig and then we put a gsm in a body collar this will be able to tell us how far this pig moves um, where does it rest does it cross from the wild to the farmland and this gsm caller um, sends signals to a web a database on the website every three hours so we are able to download this information and be able to plot on the movements of, of this pig so we do that this pig caller stays on for about two or, or three months so then we have the blood in our in our tubes or filter paper and then that is a, a very valuable sample to take to the laboratory for to find out if this if this bush pig has got an um, African scientific virus in it. That was for the bush pig. Now for the warthog, um, because the warthog is is active during daytime, then we can use, <coughs> in addition to the cage, we can use another. Um, another technique which is we call a, a drop net technique which we also got uh, from our colleagues in uh, fs colleagues in the, the us us wildlife research center in the fort collins and this this group involves the uh, it involves uh, mike marlow who has been who has been very instrumental in making a startup john Berok and dale norton and also my other colleague from uh, sweden carl Carl Stoll was also been very influential. So now this uh, this uh, drop net has got four pillars, and the, these pillars on the top they have got uh, magnets, and then there's a string uh, passing through uh, the edges of the of the net uh, with the electrical with the with wires. So these magnet these wires eventually are connected to a, a car battery a 12 volt car battery which can be remotely activated by a, a by remote control so if you engage it if you activate it then the magnets there's current moving in the four corners on the top then uh, the magnets hold it together and then the the net is up of course with the strings attached on each of the of the pillars and then in the center you put uh, again bait you put in food leftovers you put whatever is you have seen is interesting to, for the for the for the for the warthogs and then they come in and then uh, 
and when you see that they're actually in the center you're standing somewhere in the safe distance not to scare them away um when you see that they are they're now in the center of the of the of the net then you, you activate the remote control and then the net falls down in the scaffold the water will get entangled in this net and then there you are you go in and we take blood samples again for further for investigation to see if they are if there is african soil fever in this and again we we put a, a chip in these pigs to see if we have sampled them uh, before or not um we used to use this method at night but then it was very we we found complications in this method because then um at night you can't see the center of the net so we were using a we use a thermal a thermal camera thermal visual camera um to be able to see to see how um how far the pigs are to see what is, whether the pigs are moving in so ideally we had put a, a hot block of food or a hot cake in the middle but then we kind of discontinued this method of using the drop net at night because you must have enough sufficient manpower to be able to work on these pigs so that's one those are those are two methods of sampling the bush pig and also the warthog but then i mentioned another part the the soft tick of the onfodorus group which stays in the burrows we must also collect those ticks to find out do these ticks actually have the african swine virus in them so what we do you get a, a shovel uh, you modify the shovel to make it long enough then you you first go on top of the barrel if you locate the barrel where the pigs are staying then you jump onto you make some noise make sure that whatever animal is inside there is it runs out you don't want to be picking soil from a barrel and then an animal runs into you you may not live to tell the story luckily we haven't found any animal in there so then you pick the soil from from the from the barrel and put it on a white um, plastic bag in the in the sunshine because remember we said this this takes don't like light so when they get exposed to sunshine or when they get exposed to light they begin uh, moving away you begin you begin to see them moving so you then you pick them and put them in a in a, a bijou a bijou bottle which is perforated then take that to the lab and the and the you want to investigate if these ticks have got um african swine fever in them then in the laboratory you will be out you will be doing dna extraction from all these three type of samples for the domestic for the domestic pig we collecting samples we have got a network of people veterinarians pig farmers we call them informers whenever there's an outbreak they send out information to us because we also work closely with the ministry of agriculture in uganda and we are helping the ministry to carry out diagnosis and also research so they always inform us and we respond very quickly we're going and collecting samples now collecting samples from the pig domestic pig depends on how you find the pig and the age if it is a small one a yeah, physical restraint is enough just using the hands somebody holds it if it is a big one then you use a pig snare this pig snare is put in between the in the mouth of the pig between the two uh, uh, canine teeth and then you squeeze it and then you pull somebody pulls and then you have to be able, you're able to access the the blood vessel to collect the uh, blood within the, the vagina so that's how we collect these 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 samples in the field then we take them to the laboratory so presumably when you're when you're in the the field you're not the only predator there i guess there's other uh, other mammal predators so have you ever had a, a run in with big cats or oh yeah 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 um <clears throat> as i mentioned earlier when you when you put this pig this usually happen uh, the challenge of predators usually happens in when you are when you're catching the bush pigs because at night your visibility is uh, very low but then other animals have got a high vis- visibility by that time because for you it is night for them it is like day um and then uh, i remember this one time we had this uh, uh, we had the bush pig um, captured in the cage and then from afar we'll see that it is restless 
And then using our thermal camera, we surveyed the, the area around. And then, yeah, we saw there was a, there was a leopard. Um, so this leopard was thinking that, okay, I've got some, some meat in the cage. Let me go and eat this, this, this meat. So we have to be very careful to watch our surroundings, especially using the thermal camera, night visual, the night visual, visual camera to be able to see whatever is around. So that was not a very nice moment, but at least we, no one was, was injured. So from that time on, we learned that Tokyo should always be covering the, the, the cage whenever there is a, an animal which has been captured. I mean, does this virus only infect pigs, so it's it's just restricted to different pig species? Um, this pig, this this vir- the ASF virus, affects domestic pigs, the wild pigs. But that I've mentioned, they have the virus, but they don't fall sick. Mm-hmm. Unlike the African wild pigs, now in Europe, there's what we call they have got the wild boar. Now the wild boar is a close relative of domestic pigs than than a, it is more closely related to domestic pigs than it is to african wild pigs so the wild boar in europe uh, f- succumbs to this infection actually in europe the wild boar now is a, a threat in maintaining the distribution of african swine fever Mm. From Russia through uh, German, uh, uh, Estonia, they have there's a research that has has been done and uh, yeah, it is a big threat to okay. Europe as and well. Then what about things like cattle? Does does the virus affect? Does it even do? Do they ever get infected by the virus? No, 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 no. They they it, this virus is only restricted to a swine. It does not affect any other any other species so far. Okay, well, yeah, 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 yeah. So, how far afield has it gone then, as well? So, if you've mentioned if it's in Europe and in Africa, has it gone? Has it spread further? Is it like in the Americas? Or is it... No, the Americas. It was as I mentioned, nineteen fifty fifties. It was in the in the Southern America, but it was eliminated. Oh, okay. Yeah, but in Europe, um, it exists in the, now. It has become endemic in Sardinia, the island of Sardinia, which is part of Italy. It was in the Portugal. But it was it was controlled, and the, yeah. So those are the countries that are threatened. And the, I should have mentioned that this virus exists in twenty two, uh, twenty three genotypes, mm-hmm. which are very different from each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. So then you've got these samples, and presumably it's all blood samples that you're bringing back. Yeah, from the field we have blood sample. We have what we have two types. Whole blood and the and the serum. Serum is uh, collected in different way. You get whole blood and you let it stay for mm-hmm. overnight, a centrifuge, and then you decant. Whole blood, we want to maintain it whole in its entirety. So in the lab, we do we extract a total genomic DNA from whole blood, and then we do um, real time PCR in Uganda. To find out because they are diagnostic kits mm-hmm. available so we do real-time pcr to find out um, which samples are positive for african swine fever sometimes we also do conventional pcr where we target a certain portion the p72 of the sf genome mm-hmm. and then we do uh, we run gels to see which animals show positive now the animals that the samples that have tested positive um, we bring them to we, the DNA. We, we we package the DNA in a safe way, and then send it to to the CVR. Um, why do we send it to the CVR? Because then um, there has been a lot of uh, developments in terms of sequencing technology. A couple of ten years ago or so, um, Sanger sequencing was the in thing, mm-hmm. and the Generating a short fragment of about 800 base pairs or 1,000, you would say, yeah, I've got something. But now, um, next generation sequencing is up and running, and you generate lots and lots of data. So we want to generate um, full genome sequences of the saturating African swine fever viral genome in, the, in the Uganda. And the, with the possibility to work beyond Uganda in the region, to be able to find out uh, the the differences or similarities between outbreaks, and the in the 
in a spatial and temporal um, perspective. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I bring those DNA samples to the CVR to carry out um, full genome sequencing using the next generation platform here. Yeah. And I guess yeah. using this platform, it's not restricted just to looking for ASFV. You can look at all the kinds of viruses and all the kinds of infections that are in the blood. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can always, it is not restricted because that's the bit of, of the platform again. Whenever you do the, your your experiment, you will say, okay, apart from African swan fever, what else is inside this this pig? What what we have in this pig? So that's a possibility, and uh, we're still focusing on on the African swan fever sure. in the yeah. yeah. Okay, and then you would get this the DNA sequences, and then you would just compare them between times and between between farms, I guess, or pigs. Yeah. Um. For example. Um. <coughs> Let's look at positions in A and B. In 2015, there were outbreaks of African swine fever, so we collected samples from A and B. And in 2016, we got another outbreak eh, in, in B and D. Eh? And then we collected samples. And in 2017, we got another outbreak in A and B. Eh? So we collected samples. So you're finding that some outbreaks occur in the same area, then others occur in different areas across time and space. So I want to find out initially um, the, the, the variations within an individual pig. Um, is it one strain of ASF which is causing infection or within a particular pig there are several strains? Is it one strain which is causing infection within an, epidemiological, an epidemic outbreak or there are several strains? And this being a DNA, what are the changes that uh, mm -hmm. have been taking place between in different places and in different times? And then with the a lot of with this huge amount of data, one hundred and eighty six thousand bases for about a uh, hundred sequences, we'll surely be able to to find out the direction of transmission of this uh, virus from one area to another. Yeah, and that will be very important for policy. To design control strategies, we inform the policy and then they put up control strategies. And who knows, it would also contribute towards the uh, designing of, of, of vaccines, SF vaccine, because despite there being 23 genotypes, there are about 13 um, full genomes in the gene bank, and the, these are from a few these are from a few outbreaks. So with this technology, yes. we really are very optimistic to to so add quite a lot of information. So kind of this. like similar to what you had mentioned about um, FMDV. So if you're keeping an eye on these sequences and how the virus is evolving, you can maybe target um, those particular viruses for yeah, vaccine yeah, development. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because then we, we don't, we, we are not very certain on how the CSA virus keeps spreading or maintaining in the in the population. And the, well, the basic epidemiological information is uh, available, but uh, I think it is time to add more data using the molecular uh, technology techniques that we, mm -hmm. we have. Yeah, yeah. Cool. Yeah. And, um, so I think maybe in finishing up, uh, maybe you could tell us the question we always like to ask our um, interviewees. If, if you couldn't be a vet or a scientist, what would you want to be? <laughs> well, if I couldn't be a vet or a scientist, um, this question, maybe I could have answered it very well in 1999, because in 1999, that's when I took the, the turning, which, which took me to become a qualified um, veterinarian. And uh, since that time, I've never looked back. I've always been looking forward to doing my veterinary science, um, although at a higher level, because then I don't got the field to treat, I don't got the field to to, to manage diseases, but I conduct research again on animal diseases, which is a, which is a feeding into animal disease control. And now that I took that uh, that direction, um, you have to meet with the challenges which uh, go with it, looking for funding to support yourself to do research and building a team because you can't be everywhere. So that's when the several funders, but now most importantly, um, the Welcome Trust which um, gave me the intermediate fellowship in the intermediate fellowship to conduct this uh, research in Uganda in collaboration with the with the CVR at the University of Glasgow. So my team is really very 
enthusiastic, he's very motivated, and we are very thankful to the Wellcome Trust for giving us the funding. Thank you very much to Charles for sharing his succinct perspective on viruses and the diseases they cause. I know Jack and I learned a lot from him, and I hope you listeners have too. You've been listening to Contagious Thinking, a podcast from the MRC University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. I'm Connor Bamford, see you next time. And for those of you who listened from the start to the end, then I can tell you that Charles was born on a Friday. 